Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. Thanks, Michaela. So it is a joy to be here with you this morning, um, and it's kind of, it's intimidating to come up after that, <laughs> like, golly, you guys are just amazing. I mean, just the beautiful kids and just like getting to see, and not only, I love the fact that, that you honor the kids and see them getting raised up and sent, you know, up to another class, but also the volunteers. You know, people that are willing to take time out of their lives to invest in the next generation. And that's what it's all about. I mean, that, and that brings joy to my heart. I mean, when uh, Michaela was talking about, you know, we'd been in Lawrence, Kansas for, gosh, close to 25 years. And, uh, and so then we had, it was, it was kind of interesting, we had as part of our small group, there were a bunch of 20-year-olds who were there, young marrieds, and it ended up that the church plant team that we sent over to Topeka happened to have eight out of the ten people in our small group all went to Topeka. And Miriam and I were like, well, that's weird. Like, we no longer have a small group. What's going on here? And, uh, and so they went over there. The average age of community church, because we, we joined uh, we joined churches with a current church that was over there. Um, the average age of the church, there were about 20 people left in the church, average age 72. Thriving, thriving. And, uh, and so the average age of the people that we then sent to help restart this church and also to reach Washburn University, which is literally just across the street, average age 26. And so Miriam and I, we were like super excited. We had invested in the lives of, of the young people that we were sending over there. And so we went over the first Sunday where they had the relaunch. And we're like, man, this is going to be amazing. It's going to be so cool. And, uh, and as we sat there, it was like 70s, 20s, 70s, 20s. And uh, at that point, I was still in my 40s. I think Miriam was too. And we were like, okay, there's got to be some middle ground here. And so I was just silent driving home. And Miriam was kind of quiet. And then she looks over about, you know, about five minutes into the drive. And she's like, you know we have to move to Topeka, right? <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, we do. And, and it really was that simple. We just, we knew that God was calling us to help build and to join those generations of people that are coming together. And it's been amazing to see what God has done. It's now, it's now been almost two years, and we have on Sundays anywhere from 150 to 200 people, and we're actually filling in that middle generation, which is kind of cool. Um, so, so when I see stuff like that, and I see the little kids, and people are like getting invested in their lives, it's like, man, this is it. Like we're building the kingdom. So, very, very exciting. Uh, one of the things that happened to me over this past week. Just to let you in on a little secret, I turned 50. I know you didn't expect it. You look at all this, and you're like, no way that dude's 50. He's at least 60. 
And, uh, but no, I turned 50, and, uh, and in doing it, it gave me kind of an opportunity to reflect back, you know, a little bit. I think it's healthy for all of us when we have birthdays to kind of reflect back and think like, man, what is going on? Like, how is, you know, how's life going? What are some of the key events that God is doing? And, uh, and so I had an opportunity to kind of do that. It was interesting because the, my actual birthday was just jam-packed, full of stuff. And, and I'm not, I know some of you are like huge birthday people, and you're probably like, why didn't you invite me to your birthday? I feel bad, you know, like I thought I was your friend, you know, but I just don't get excited about birthdays. That's just me. So, so I, I had just planned it like any other day. And, uh, and so it was really cool, though. I, I thought back that night, I was getting in bed. I was like, man, what did I do today on my 50th? Like, and uh, as I thought through it, the first two hours of my day, I spent with our campus staff. Uh, who are reaching Washburn, and we developed a strategic plan for the year, talked about, like, what God was doing, where they were to invest, and just, like, came up with all these creative ideas for reaching the incoming class of freshmen, and I was like, that's awesome. Like, if I can start off 50 investing in young people that are investing in the college campus, nailed it. And then uh, then I was like, what did I do next? I was like, oh, the next two hours I met with our church staff. And we were talking about what we're building, what God's doing, how the kingdom is coming in Topeka, how we can partner with different things. I was like, dang, that was cool. Nailed it. Like, that was, that was really super solid. And then the next four hours, I then drove over to Lawrence and met with some of my best buddies in the world that I've been building with for like 20 years. And we planned and strategized on ways to like change the political climate in, in Kansas from the ground root, grassroots up. So I was like, you know, pinky in the brain. What are you going to do? You know, change the world. Like, that's what we're doing every day. So I was like, man, that was fun. Like, four hours of that, that was fun. Then I came home, I read, I studied, and then uh, ended up having dinner with the girls. They talked volleyball for like an hour. And I was like, man, this is really kind of, this is like a microcosm of my last 20-some years. And... uh, and it hit me, it was like, I think, I've always read books that, like, tell you as you get older, you should be coming into a zone where you're, like, doing the stuff that you're good at after a while. And I was like, oh, like, this might actually be working. You know, this whole following God, being obedient thing, and doing what you're supposed to, like, it actually just transforms into this is what I do every day. And, uh, and so my encouragement to us, and, and I'm going to talk about this today, is that God has turning points for us everywhere along the way. He has turning points for us in what we do and what's happening with us, but we have to be aware of those, and we have to understand them for what they are. And so it, it got me to thinking about some of the turning points in my own life, and one of those turning points happened when I was probably, I don't know, 20 years old. Uh, I was, uh, I think, a junior in college. And, man, I, I thought that I had hit the jackpot, that there was this girl who was wonderful and amazing, and I was going to marry her, and she didn't share those feelings. And uh, so there was a breakup that was uh, her initiated, and uh, and I was devastated. 
devastated. Anybody ever been there? No, don't admit it in church. It's too private. Um, but no, I was devastated, and I was brokenhearted. And I remember I was driving back uh, from, I went to visit her, and she broke up. And so on the way home, I was driving back, and in the, in the midst of tears, I was just like, I remember just like praying and being like, God, what is going on? Like, what did I miss? How did I miss this? And uh, I looked up in the middle of the Ozarks, in the middle of nowhere, and there's this massive billboard. And it's this, you know, the whitest flowing lock-haired Jesus you've ever seen in your life. And, uh, and on the sign it said, Jesus is the reason. And it's the, I mean, it was the cheesiest thing, but in the moment of where I was and the despair and just the hopelessness, it immediately was just like, oh, like there's, okay, there's probably something more there. And I remember that being a turning point, as cheesy as it was, as weird as it was, I've often thought about like driving back, you know, like, is that stupid sign still there? And I just imagine it probably did. I don't know. But it was like one of those moments, it was a turning point of like God saying, hey, you can trust me. You can trust me. And then I thought there was another uh, kind of moment in my life where I had been practicing law for three or four years, and then my wife and I felt a call into ministry at that time. And so what they didn't tell us when they asked us to join the ministry is that by doing so, you had the privilege of going out and raising support from people that you didn't know, right? It was kind of like an okey-doke, like, I really feel like you're called to the ministry. Yeah, me too. Now go raise your support. Eh, I have a really good job. I don't know if I want to do that. And so in the midst of this process, I remember I was down in the basement one night. I'm making phone calls. And as I'm making phone calls, I end up at the, the well, the last phone call because I just quit after this one. But I, I was making phone calls, and, uh, and a guy said, well, I'm not going to meet with you, but I will give you this piece of advice. Have you ever heard of a man named George Mueller? I was like, yeah, I've heard of him. He goes, well, George Mueller was such a man of faith that he never asked anyone for money. Maybe you should try that. And I was like, and I, 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 I'm pretty sure my response to him was, well, my name is Ryan Hickman, and uh, I feel like this is how God has asked us to raise our support team, but I appreciate your advice. But I remember hanging up the phone, and I was just like, oh. Like, not only am I, like, personally hurt that the person didn't want to talk to me, but now I'm a bad Christian, too. Like, I don't have enough faith. I don't have, like, it's just like, this is brutal. And I remember just sitting down there and just being with God and talking to God and, I, and, and just having a very frank conversation. I was like, God, I can't do this. Like, I can't do this. We were, I think we had had, we had one kid who was two, another that was, like, just born or on the way, and I was just like, what am I doing? I just left a great job. <laughs> like, what am I doing? And, uh, and I remember God just kind of quietly speaking in that moment. He was like, you're right, you can't do it. It's like, okay. And then he said, but if you trust me, I'm going to provide for you. 
And I remember hearing that and just not in an audible voice, but just God impressing on me like, hey, if you trust me, I'm going to provide. And God has provided every single step of the way. And that was another real turning point for us and for our family just to say, you know what, we're all in. We're going to be all in with what God is doing. We're going to be all in on this kingdom proposition. And, and I think for many of you, you've probably, and I've had, you know, there's probably been hundreds, thousands of moments of just little things along the way that were turning points. And I'm sure that you guys have had those as well. But one of the things that I realized along the way in most of the turning points that I've had in my life is the title of the message this morning. And what I realized is, Ryan, you don't know Jack. Like, you just don't know. You don't know anything. You may think you know some things, but when you get outside of trusting God and listening to God, Ryan, you really don't get it. You don't know Jack. And I found this quote from an American musician, which I absolutely love. His name is Warren Cucurulo. And uh, say that aloud, Cucurulo. Like, that's pretty fun. And he said, Becky liked it, nobody else did. And he said this, he said, the turning point is really just knowing that you're an imbecile. Right? Like, that's pretty rough. Um, and, and, and there is, there is a degree where it's like, okay, that's not accurate. Like, we are made in the image of our creator. We're made in the image of God. We're not imbeciles. There is value and dignity to us. But, man, it is true that there is something about we don't know what we don't know. And really, the first step to sometimes coming into an understanding of what God is doing is a little bit of humility. Right? A little bit of humility can go a long way understanding that we don't know what we don't know. And maybe you guys have experienced similar turning points to what I have. Maybe it was a long-held belief about God being distant and far away, and then God shows up right in the middle of something and shows you that he's very near and he's very present. Maybe it was when you stopped listening to culture and started reading your Bible. That's a huge turning point. Maybe it was a belief that God no longer heals or intervenes, but then you took a risk and you decided to pray for somebody and you saw them get healed. Huge turning point. Maybe it was a situation in, the, in which you thought forgiveness is not an option. What they did was just too bad. But then you chose to forgive and you saw God come into that situation and completely redeem it and change it. Turning points. So whatever the case is, what I find is that Jesus has a way of coming in and flipping the script in our lives. And this morning I want us to take a look at the book of John, John chapter 11. And we're going to see an incredible story here in which Jesus flips the script, he changes the narratives, and he has turning points all over the place. So this is the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. He was the brother of Martha and Mary. Most of us, if, if we're kind of church backgroundy, we know that Lazarus was a dude who died, and then Jesus raised him back to life. But we're going to take a look at this story, and we're going to look to see how many times people did not have the proper understanding and perspective, but, but Jesus was able to step in and change it in just a moment. 
So let's start here in verse 3. It says, So the sisters, Mary and Martha, the sisters, sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So they just found out that Lazarus was sick. Tiny bit of background to this. So Jesus happened to be near Jerusalem in a city that was just about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And prior to this, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders. And as he is visiting with these religious leaders, Jesus makes a claim that he is indeed the Son of God. Now, did that usually go well in the New Testament with the religious leaders? Not at all. Okay, that was blasphemy to them. And when you blasphemed, the penalty for blasphemy was stoning. And so when Jesus did that, and when Jesus made this proclamation, they picked up stones, and they were ready to kill him. And the Bible just says, it's so funny, it's so many times the Bible like understates things, right? And it says, and Jesus walked away. You're like, what? Like, I want the backstory. Like, how many times in our world do we see people like pick up stones? Like, we get to see stuff from all over the world now. How many times when people pick up stones, does it end well? Never. They, I mean, they're always getting chucked. There's always damage. But then you read in the Bible, and Jesus walked away. Like, how did he walk away? Like, he had like a shield on him? Did he, like, what? He just walked away. And so that was the scene. They literally had just left this. Left the scene where people were going to stone him and kill him. And then he goes 12 miles north of Jerusalem. He's sitting in a town. As he's sitting in the town with his disciples, he gets the message, Lazarus is sick. He's going to die. And that's where we picked up here in verse 3. And the sisters were like, hey, he's sick. He's going to die. Jesus said the illness is not going to lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So Jesus hears that his friend is sick, and he thinks, we're good here. I'll just stay here. Everybody's like, wait, but this is the dude who you're best friends with. You love and care for his family. We've seen you healing people for the last two and a half years. Why don't you go heal the dude? It's a great question. You and I probably would have been asking the same question. But if we had been asking that question, we didn't know Jack. Right? We just didn't know. So verse 7, then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, but Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you want to go back there again? So Jesus waits for two days, and then he tells the disciples, yeah, we're going to go back. So now he's got two groups mad at him, right? The first group is like, hey, can you come back? Dude needs healed. He's like, nah, we're going to stay here. And now he's got the disciples who they just ran from a stoning incident. And they're like, uh, hey, let's not go back there. And Jesus is like, yeah, let's go back. Let's go back. And they're like, this makes no sense. 
This makes no sense. We literally just got out with our lives, and you want to go back to the place where we came from. You would think that Jesus, if he really cared about his disciples, would avoid the danger. Or maybe find another way to get Lazarus to him. But if you thought that, you don't know Jack, right? Jesus is doing something else here. And so Jesus explains to the disciples, starting in verse 11, that they have to return to Bethany because Lazarus has died. It says this, After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So, this is fascinating. He's explaining to them, hey, listen, our buddy Lazarus, not really asleep, dude died, but we're going to go back. And then Thomas, who we all love Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas, the one who just couldn't quite get it right. So, Thomas, bless his heart, responds, well, I guess we should go with him so that he doesn't have to die by himself. Like, it's just a foregone conclusion. And that's what tells you it was bad when Jesus left. Because Thomas is like, it's a foregone conclusion. He's going to die. And so, but the thing I love about Thomas, he's like, hey, let's go with him. We'll all die. I mean, how about that for some toxic masculinity? That's pretty nice, right? I mean, in this day and age where it's like, man, where are all the men, you know, no, that's toxic. Hey, you know what? The thing I love about Thomas, at least Thomas was able to step up and say, hey, you know what? I believe in him and I believe in what's happening enough that I'm willing to go. And if Jesus is going to go down, I'm going down with him. You know, there's something refreshing about that, that really what true masculinity is is a boldness, it's a courage, it's a self-sacrifice, it's a love for something bigger than yourself. You're willing to lay down your life for the things that matter. And so Thomas, as ridiculous as this may sound, there was at least something in him where it's like, man, if Jesus is going down, let's go down with him. Ride or die, right? And so there's something beautiful in that. There's something beautiful in the masculinity that is represented there. But when you look at the reality as well of what was going on, Thomas didn't know. He didn't know Jack. Like, he really didn't know what was, what was happening. He really didn't know what Jesus was inviting him into. But I love him because he was willing to say, whatever it is, I'm with you. I'm with you. And so verse 17, it says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, 
I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So this interaction between Jesus and Martha is very, very, very convicting. And the thing that's interesting is she acknowledges two different things. She acknowledges, number one, that Jesus has the power to heal Lazarus. She's seen it happen before where Jesus heals people. So she correctly identifies that Jesus, I know you have the power to heal. And the second thing she does is she has great theology. She also accurately identifies that in the resurrection, in the last day, that there will be life again. And so she is both correct theologically about the resurrection and she's correct about who Jesus is, that Jesus has the power to heal. But she still didn't know Jack, right? Like she still was missing out on what was happening and what was going on. Even though Jesus had told her, your brother will rise again because of the way she thought, because of the things that she had been taught, because of what she knew about God, she assumed that it didn't mean here and the now. She assumed it meant, oh, this is for the by and by. This is for some other time. And so she missed out on what Jesus was saying to her right then and there. So verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. So Jesus takes this opportunity to identify once again who he is that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the resurrection, that in Jesus, victory is found over death, that in Jesus, victory is found in resurrection, and that he is the one that was coming to set people free and to overcome sin and death. Jesus is just speaking to her like, hey, this is who I am, and I don't want you to miss it. And so Martha then turns to go get her sister Mary. And when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Hey, there's a lot here in this passage. You know, Mary, again, just as Martha had, Mary correctly notes that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died. That Jesus had the, the ability and the power to heal Lazarus. And in this section of Scripture, we also get some incredible insight into the heart of Jesus and into Jesus' compassion. And Jesus is, when you, when you read this, you can just feel 
the brokenheartedness that Jesus has experienced, the pain that he is feeling for the people that, is, that are going through this situation. And there are a lot of different commentaries that have thoughts about what's going on and thoughts about what is happening during this time. But I think one of, one of my favorites is the commentary uh, that is done by, by R.C. Sproul on this. And R.C. Sproul takes the opportunity and takes the time to suggest that really what is happening to Jesus, when it says that he wept, it is, talking, it is, is literally talking about this deep, welling up, broken-hearted, just angst. And if you've ever you know, seen, or seen, your, seen or experienced yourself a moment where someone passed or something devastated happened and, and you just begin to lose bodily control because, because you're just weeping, that, that is the expression that is being used as they describe what is happening in the Bible here. And Sproul suggests that this deep moaning and pain was both a human understanding of pain associated with what was happening particularly to his friend Lazarus, but it was a lot deeper than that. That this was Jesus' response to the toll that sin and death had played on the world. See, one of the things that, that we forget sometimes is that this, this event actually occurred just weeks before Jesus himself went to the cross. And while nobody in this story knew that that's what was going to happen, Jesus did. Jesus kind of knew how the events were lining up. And Jesus knew that he was going to have this ultimate battle with sin and death. In which the, the sacrifice for that was going to be his life. And so think about in the midst of what is happening when Jesus sees one of his best friends in the world died, and he sees the grief of the community. He sees the grief of Mary and Martha, who he loved, having this battle with death. And he's thinking to himself, this ought not be. This ought not be. There, there is a way past sin and death. But right now, in the here and now, people are stuck in this condition because of their choices. And you can imagine the brokenheartedness of Jesus being able to see beyond, being able to see the victory that he was going to win over sin and death, but being able to, being stuck in the present reality of people suffering through that pain. And Jesus understanding and feeling the pain that we all feel when we go through those moments. And I believe it was those things that brought Jesus to weep and to mourn. So Jesus is wrestling with these things, and in verse 37, we humans are amazing. So as Jesus is wrestling with these things, this, this gravity far beyond what we would imagine, the crowd says, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? It's like, really, he's getting ready to save the world. He's getting ready to overcome sin and death. He's feeling your pain, and you're like, come on, Jesus. I've seen this before. Why didn't you fix this? So go ahead and say it with me. They didn't know Jack. They just didn't know. And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. So, it's interesting to me that some liberal theologians 
and by liberal theologians, I just mean people that don't take God's word seriously. Liberal theologians believed that Lazarus, some of them, that Lazarus wasn't really dead. He was kind of in a hangout session. And it reminds me of one of the, uh, one of the greatest clips in the second greatest movie ever made. And we're going to watch that here real quick. His daddy can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. He's dead, he can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? All right. So I just felt like we probably need a little levity at this point, right? So, but the reality is Jesus was not mostly dead. Or Jesus. Lazarus was not mostly dead. Lazarus was dead dead, right? Lazarus was four-day dead. Lazarus was stinky odor dead. Lazarus was, that rock was over the cave dead. 